When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 64, Leon, Royalist or Revolutionary? In the last episode, we examined the revolt of the North, the influential and widespread rebellions of Normandy and Brittany, which came crashing down in just a few short weeks. The insurrection of Leon is a completely different story. Famed for the brutality of the repression which follows, In the next three episodes, we'll not only examine the Lyon of 1793, but the city's remarkable and contradictory experiences of the revolution overall. I have absolutely loved researching these episodes, and I am so excited to take you on a journey through the Republic's second city. To say that this story is one that I did not expect would be an understatement. But before we get into it, a humongous, gigantic, extraordinary thank you to the people supporting Grey History. Grey History is only possible thanks to the amazing people supporting the show. Bonus episodes, episode extras, early access, live video discussions, and an ad-free version of the show are just some of the exclusive perks available for those people doing their part to keep Grey History on the air. Sign up today through the link in the show notes or on the website and help ensure that there's more grey history waiting for you tomorrow. It's with great pleasure that I get to introduce the newest members of the grey history community. A warm welcome to the newest virtuous citizens, Andrew, Revolution, Margot, Stephanie, Dennis, Rob and Carlos. Another warm welcome to the newest true revolutionaries, Michael, Gary and Mark. A big thank you to Rob for increasing his pledge and also becoming a true revolutionary. I hope you all enjoyed early access to this episode weeks ahead of the main show. A big shout out to Ritas for becoming a champion of the people, along with Hannah, who is also now a champion of the people after increasing her pledge. Both Ritas and Hannah join the amazing Cindy, George, Mark, William, Laura, Daniel, Monica, Joel, Susan, Adam, Tom, Eyal, Harold, David, Alistair, Kevin, Carl, and Jeff. Finally, one last thank you to the Pantheon of Greats, the heroes of the revolution, who have now been joined by Howard, who has also increased his pledge. Thank you to Howard for your generous support, and thank you to all the heroes, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff, Olga, Kevin, Scott, and Andrew. As always, Thank you to everyone for doing their part to keep grey history going. 
Before we get into it, I can't stress enough that there are a few things you can do to help grey history. Sharing the show on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Reddit, other discords and communities, all of these things make a huge difference. Please do tell your friends and family about the show, and if you listen on Apple Podcasts in particular, a written review is also of immense help. Anyway, that's enough from me, so let's get into this amazing story of Leon, a city of contradictions and a city of silk. Welcome to Grey History. All the inhabitants of Lyon shall be disarmed. All their arms shall be immediately distributed to the defenders of the Republic. A portion shall be handed over to the patriots of Lyon, who were repressed by the rich and the counter-revolutionaries. The city of Lyon shall be destroyed. Any building inhabited by the wealthy shall be demolished. All that shall be left will be the houses of the poor, the residences of patriots either outlawed or led astray, the buildings especially employed by industry, and those monuments dedicated to humanity and public instruction. The name of Lyon shall be erased from the list of cities of the Republic. The gathering of the houses that remain shall henceforth bear the name of Liberated City. There shall be raised over the ruins of Lyon a column that will attest to posterity the crimes and punishment of the royalists of that city with this inscription. Leon made war on liberty. Leon is no more. So decreed the convention in October 1793. Some four months after the Federalist revolts had commenced across the nation, the largest of the Federalist strongholds had finally been defeated. For the Jacobins in Paris, this victory after a nine-week siege, was tremendous. Although the Federalist revolts continued, the defeat of the Republic's second city was a decisive moment. Only Toulon and Bordeaux remained in insurrection, with Normandy, Brittany and the Mediterranean city of Marseille all having been defeated in the prior months. By mid-October, the issue increasingly at hand was not how to defeat the rebels but rather how to punish them. Having endangered the very existence of the Republic, no quarter could be given to these treasonous counter-revolutionaries. However, as we shall see, the question of appropriate retribution had no easy answer. Between imprisonment, the guillotine and executions by firing squads of cannons, there is much to unpack. Yet, before we can examine the bloody and infamous terror in Lyon, a series of events that historian Bill Edmonds describes as a savage repression that is perhaps the most notorious episode of the entire terror, we must examine 
how this unfortunate state of affairs came to be. How is it that the second largest city of the Republic became a leading Federalist stronghold? Why was Lyon the perceived capital of royalism and counter-revolution? And what were the unique local factors that enabled Lyon's prolonged and bloody rebellion, an insurrection entirely different from that of northern France in Normandy and Brittany? Furthermore, we must also ask the questions which, although less evident, are just as fascinating. Having dived deep into the history of revolutionary Lyon, what I found was a history that matched none of my expectations. Although known for royalism and reaction, Lyon was, at times, far more revolutionary and democratic than Paris itself. Furthermore, despite the focus on class conflict by Marxist historians within the dynamics of the capital, tensions between classes are debatably far more prominent in the nation's second city. Thus, it's in the majestic city of Lyon that we have ourselves a mystery. A city with a unique experience of the revolution and an experience wholly disconnected to the reputation prescribed by overtly Jacobin accounts. It's for this reason that over the next two episodes, we will examine the rise and fall of revolutionary Lyon, a city of contradictions and ultimately a city of terror. Located on the confluence of both the Sonne and Rhône rivers, the city of Lyon is roughly 240 miles or 400 kilometers southeast of Paris. Originally founded by the Romans in the 1st century BCE, Lyon's strategic location was not only of military value, but soon economic as well. An administrative centre under Rome, the town's fortunes ebbed and flowed with the empire, and subsequently the various states which battled over its remains. It was not until the early 1300s that Lyon became part of France, and it was under the patronage of the French crown that the future of the city was shaped forever. Granted various rights, privileges and monopolies by French monarchs, Lyon became the epicentre of the silk industry in France, and over time, Europe as a whole. For centuries, the entire city prospered and languished with the fortunes of this most luxurious commodity. And to make sure we're all on the same page, perhaps it's worth a short but fascinating digression. Silk is produced by harnessing the cocoons of silkworms. Silkworms, which you can think of as little caterpillars, live on mulberry trees, and when they're ready to become a silk moth, they form a cocoon, literally made of silk. But instead of letting nature work its magic, we humans boil the poor worms in their cocoons and unravel them to extract the precious thread. Since a worm creates its cocoon by spinning itself a few hundred thousand times, one can unravel a single piece of silk from each cocoon that is hundreds of meters in length. That's multiple thousand feet. As far as I'm concerned, that is absolutely nuts. Having extracted the silk, it then can be used to make all sorts of garments. So, 
given that silkworms and their precious mulberry trees can only live in certain conditions, and given the intensive nature of rearing, collecting, boiling and unravelling, what we have here is a commodity with high production costs and low production volumes that has helped to make silk one of the most desirable fabrics, along with its strong, lightweight and breathable qualities. All of these factors are why silk remains an expensive and sought-after commodity in the 21st century. Now, by the time of the French Revolution, the history of Lyon and the history of silk were irrevocably intertwined. To state that Lyon was the city of silk would be an understatement. At a population of about 150,000 prior to the revolution, Lyon was considerably smaller than the capital, perhaps a quarter or even just a fifth of the size of Paris. Yet it was still by far the second largest city of the Republic, with both Marseille and Bordeaux being about three-fourths the size. Of these 150,000 inhabitants, roughly a third of the population relied on the silk industry, either directly or indirectly. One-third, an absolutely astronomical amount for a single luxury good. The reason this proportion was so high was that the silk industry had been the core foundation for Lyon's growth in the preceding centuries. Evolving as a key centre for Europe's silk trade, Lyon exported most of its production, with markets as far as northern Russia and the eastern Mediterranean. With so much of the city's prosperity tied to silk, the industry naturally defined more than just the local economy. Silk shaped everything, and there are three notable consequences of this singular economy that we need to discuss. The first is urban geography. As much as the city was shaped by the Sonne and Rhone rivers, it was also shaped by the principal good that was shipped along those waterways. For many reasons, the neighbourhoods of Lyon were defined by one's relationship with silk. The grand merchants, for example, preferred to be closer to the river Sonne than the Rhone, as the former was relatively calmer and therefore offered more desirable ports for loading and unloading goods. Weavers, however, often lived in specially designed houses on the hillier parts of the city, and no, this location wasn't for the view. Well, actually, it sort of was. Specifically, it was for the light. In an age before electricity, access to natural light was key for the weavers to actually be able to see what they were doing, so tall houses with large windows on the most elevated parts of the city became primarily the domain of Lyon's weavers. Thus, the city's social geography was in part created as a direct response to the needs of the silk trade. Unsurprisingly, neighbourhoods dominated by particular professions often developed very independent senses of local identity, fostering an intense culture of neighbourhood politics which would play an important part in the revolutionary era. But, even with these divisions, I must point out that this was still a city where the rich and the poor could live side by side, with the practical demands of the industry at times fostering this cohabitation. The unique social geography of the city 
would become critical in events to come. And by discussing the haves and have-nots, we've arrived at the second major impact of silk on the city of Lyon, class conflict. Although roughly one-third of the city was employed in professions related to silk, the real wealth of the industry benefited just the teeniest, tiniest tip of the social pyramid. Reminiscent of the sort of capitalist hierarchies we're familiar with in the 21st century, the whole industry was more or less controlled by about 400 grand merchants. These merchants were known as the Merchant Fabricant in my terrible French, which translates roughly to merchant manufacturers or grand merchants. According to official documents, they were also sometimes called wholesale silk merchants or merchants with other manufacturers, which gives you a sense of their position at the top of the food chain. Now, the dominance of the merchant manufacturers was the result of centuries of evolution. Supported by royal decrees that would horrify free market enthusiasts, a range of monopolies, tariffs, duties and the like had ring-fenced the favourable position of these mighty manufacturers. For example, in 1731, new regulations restricted master weavers to a maximum of four looms like limiting the ovens of a baker or the anvils of a blacksmith, onerous restrictions on looms, the critical device used to actually weave, had profound implications for the social mobility of the industry. Master weavers were now dependent on the capital and connections of the merchant manufacturers and had little hope of significant advancement beyond this point. Before long, master weavers were forced to take small jobs on terms dictated by the merchant manufacturers, who could also force the weaver to use their raw silk and sell that product back to them, all at favourable prices. The result was entirely predictable, and the reduced independence of the master weavers can even be seen in their titles. Whereas once it was common to see titles using the term master, by the time of the revolution, this term had largely fallen into disuse in everyday language. Now denied the upside of the boom times, weavers were hardly sheltered from economic storms. The luxury goods market was highly sensitive to shocks such as foreign wars and changes in court fashion, and long-time silk weavers also suffered the physical consequences from their trade. Having spent years after years bending over their looms, the result was spinal disorders for many. Between the chronic health conditions and the chronic instability of a luxury goods industry, there were considerable drawbacks for everyday weavers and other artisans working in associated professions. Naturally, this led to significant class tensions, which at times were brutally suppressed by the merchant elites their members in the city government, and their allies in the royal court. Such tensions, such violence, and such traumatic memories would all have a role in shaping Leon's revolution. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesse from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. 
Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, the last consequence of a city so dependent on silk was just that. Dependence. When the good times rolled, Sunshine and rainbows were plentiful, but when the market for silk soured, so too did Leon. In the years leading up to the revolution, a number of factors came together to create an economic nightmare for a city addicted to the export of a single good. An unfortunate cocktail of wars, insurrections, tariffs, increased competition, and substitute fabrics all dampened demand for silk in the second half of the 18th century. Between 1769 and 1783, the value of Lyon silks sold in France dropped by roughly 30%. But that was just the start. The years immediately preceding the revolution were even worse. Unemployment skyrocketed as supply problems, crop failures, and reduced demand all exacerbated the industry's pain. By the time of the revolution, Contemporary estimates record that perhaps 20,000 people were unemployed, although the real number was likely higher once you factor in the flow-on effects into associated industries, such as embroidery, construction and shipping, just to name a few. In this, Lyon stood apart from the other great provincial centres. Bordeaux, Marseille and Nantes all benefited from seaborne trade across the Atlantic. Rouen had also been hit hard due to its dependence on textile manufacturing, but at least it had a parlement to bolster its local economy. Lyon did not have one of the 13 parlements, nor did it have a university to foster economic activity independent of the silk trade. In fact, the local elite, in particular the city government, which was known as the consulate, had actively hindered economic diversification efforts which it perceived to be a threat to silk. After all, the consulate's members had been enriched by the industry, and so the municipality's members were hardly going to jeopardise the source of their own fortunes. Needless to say, all of this unemployment 
was not exactly the best recipe for either full stomachs nor a harmonious and happy community. In 1786, craftsmen and artisans from a wide variety of industries collectively organised to strike for better conditions and concessions. Initiated by hat makers, the strikes were joined not only by the city's weavers, but also pastry makers, carpenters, and other workers from across the Third Estate. Eventually, the local government, the so called consulate, was forced to accept some demands, but these concessions were promptly revoked once order was restored. Imprisonment and hangings helped to ensure peace remained until the revolution, but the events of 1786 made it clear that collective action from the workers of Lyon was possible. To some, this possibility of future action looked like an opportunity. To others, a threat. Thus, it was with this background of economic decline and social tensions that Lyon entered the French Revolution. With its lacklustre economy and strained class relations, one might expect the city to be a champion of the revolutionary agenda. It wasn't. In 1788, as the battle over whether or not an estate general would be called was waged in Paris, the press, and the provinces, the kingdom's second city remained largely on the sidelines. Even as the government attempted to suppress the parlements, those traditional courts which were not to be confused with parliaments, Lyon remained missing in action. In this, Lyon was different from its provincial peers. You may recall that in mid-1788, the government's forced suppression and replacement of the parlements provoked unrest across the nation. Perhaps most famously, it was in defence of their prized parlement that the inhabitants of the town of Grenoble rioted, performing the so-called Day of Tiles, in which they threw roof tiles at government troops. This was all the way back in episode 7. The events in Grenoble resulted in the miniature Estates General known as the Facile Assembly, which helped to make the National Estates General all the more irresistible. Well, no one was throwing tiles in Lyon. Lacking a parlement and a traditional estates general at a provincial level, Lyon possessed neither of the two main institutions which the rest of the country was using in their battles with Versailles. But perhaps more importantly, Lyon also lacked more than just the means to resist the reforms of the government. It also lacked the will. Lyon stood to benefit from the government's actions against the Parlements, as it would become the seat of a grand bailage in the new judicial system. The establishment of a judicial centre would aid the city's precarious economy, not to mention boost its prestige and influence. Yet, while this might explain some of Lyon's passivity, there are other factors here that explain the city's political irrelevance. And once again, it all comes back to silk. For a variety of reasons, Lyon had several dependencies on the crown. It was the crown's tariff policies which protected the silk industry. It was the demands of the aristocracy which provided a market for its principal export. And it was the government's agents which aided Lyon in securing sufficient food supplies 
from neighbouring regions. As such, feuding with Versailles wasn't the smartest move when the local economy was already in the dumps and sky-high food prices risked a repeat of the social agitation seen in 1786. More inclined to count coins than political demands, many of the city's elite, be it the wealthy aristocrats or the mercantile bourgeoisie, were happy for the national debates to resolve themselves so long as it didn't interfere with business. And given years of economic hardship and the social upheaval that comes with hungry stomachs, that wasn't an entirely unreasonable stance to take. But the same cannot be said for the working people of Lyon who were actually producing the silk. Having previously tried and failed to secure concessions by strikes, the revolution presented a new opportunity to vent frustrations and push for meaningful reforms. Noteworthy enthusiasm for the Estates General emerged, as did public support behind proposals to double the Third Estates' representatives and vote by head rather than by order. With many workers jumping on the revolutionary bandwagon, tensions soon erupted when the aristocratic consulate attempted to interfere in matters of the Third Estate. Like elsewhere in France, the citizens of Lyon were starting to conceptualise the Third as the nation, and the privileges of the clergy and the aristocracy as unjustifiable abuses of power and position. As Abbé Siez penned his famous pamphlet, What is the Third Estate? Other pamphlets surfaced in Lyon denouncing the consulate as unrepresentative, incompetent, and archaic. Words were followed by actions when the weavers successfully excluded merchant manufacturers from helping to draft the list of grievances for Lyon's third estate. The eventual document was unsurprisingly quite radical, full of demands to remedy the abuses of the city's consulate and the silk industry's mercantile elite. In fact, while the nobility's list of grievances essentially ignored the issue of municipal reform, the third estate lampooned the consulate and demanded that it be replaced by an elected municipal assembly which would be comprised by a majority of commoners. Leaving no stone unturned, the third elected to the Estates General some of the consulate's leading antagonists, ensuring that the city's divisions would not go unnoticed by the National Assembly, which would be formed in Paris shortly thereafter. Alongside the increasingly agitated workers was a small group of intellectual bourgeoisie who, unlike their merchant brethren, were eager to embrace the revolution's principles and possibilities. If the commercial elite had largely remained disinterested in the Enlightenment, this small group of intellectuals were their polar opposites, desperate for the chance to modernise and rationalise the old regime, both in the nation and in Lyon. However, like the deputies of the Third Estate in Paris, it didn't take long before these individuals were horrified by acts of popular violence. Economic hardship and food shortages never mixed well, and in July and August 1789, violent unrest resulted in attacks against internal tax barriers. But while some disturbances mirrored those in Paris, 
This is where the imitation came to an end. Unlike the capital, and unlike most of France, Lyon charted an independent course as the revolution emerged in 1789. In Paris and across the nation, a municipal revolution soon took place, with communities sweeping aside old local governments and replacing them with new communes. Joining these new municipalities was the new National Guard, with communities quickly creating revolutionary militias and shortly thereafter forming federations with nearby communities to secure property, liberty and safety. Remember, that's when the word federation wasn't on Santa's naughty list. But Lyon was having none of this. Despite calls by the Third Estate to replace the consulate with an elected municipal government, and despite a municipal revolution sweeping across the rest of the nation, it wasn't until February 1790 that the consulate was finally forced from office. That's six months later, an eternity in revolutionary France. Likewise, it took months for a full-functioning National Guard to be created, and foreign troops, always a source of unrest for the Parisians, remained stationed in Lyon for some time. This seeming lack of revolutionary enthusiasm can be seen not only in what was not overthrown, but also what was not created. Just two political clubs of any note were established in 1789, and both of them had hardly any members. Nationally, the self-anointed champions of the Third Estate were eager to grab the levers of power, to revolutionise the nation. But in Lyon, the revolution seemed to be passing the city by, and the question is why? For some historians, the answer can be found in a combination of class and economic factors. Historian Julie Johnson asserts that there was a general willingness to find a solution within the industrial structures already in place. Despite their complaints and their very real hardships, the silk workers remained somewhat politically conservative because they were tied to the production systems of the silk industry. In particular, many workers still aspired to become part of the hierarchy of the merchants, and in the meantime, they were also dependent on the connections and capital of the merchant manufacturers. Both of these factors discouraged unmitigated upheaval. Put another way, local factors, those related to the silk industry, shaped a far more conservative approach to revolution when compared to the approach of Paris. Whereas in the capital, protests were seen as the best means to ensure food and economic security, in Lyon, the continued production of silk seemed a safer bet. Historian Bill Edmonds offers another interpretation, one that adds greater nuance to the traditional Marxist interpretation of the revolution. Edmonds believed that the classic interpretation of the revolution, that being the Marxist interpretation, at times oversold the centrality of class conflict. However, he also believed that some revisionist historians risked going too far the other way, excessively diminishing the role of social tensions as they explained the revolution through other means. 
adopting a middle-of-the-road approach, Edmonds argued that Leon's reluctance to wholeheartedly embrace the revolution was the result of a divided bourgeoisie between mercantile elites on the one hand and the intellectual elites on the other. With little coherence within the bourgeoisie, the group was thus ill-suited to perform the revolutionary role assigned to them by traditional Marxist perspectives. After all, given the uniqueness of the silk industry, many merchants had far more in common with the aristocracy and were thus incentivized to work with them to contain both the unrest and demands that might jeopardize the industry's viability. Historian Bill Edmonds writes, The bourgeois, however, were themselves divided, and, as we shall see, this limited their capacity to press the political demands which began to be formulated in 1788 and 1789. Bourgeois here refers to a broad group which was by no means revolutionary. Few concepts have been so relentlessly questioned as the revolutionary bourgeoisie, and its limitations are obvious in the case of Lyon. Class consciousness, unity of economic interests, and overt conflict with the nobility, not to mention any sense of revolutionary purpose, are as hard to find amongst the bourgeois of Lyon, ranging down from the grand merchants to well-off independent artisan retailers, as they have been in studies of other places. But the speed with which their hostility to the consulate emerged in 1789, and still more, their pronounced consciousness of superiority to the labouring poor, suggests that in Lyon, the middling groups, loosely definable as bourgeois, were acquiring a sense of class through friction with both the oligarchy and the populace. He goes on to write, Beyond the sense of distance from the labouring poor, there was little coherence in Lyon bourgeois culture on the eve of the revolution. There were deep differences of outlook between the merchants and the intellectual circles of professional men and nobles where enlightened thought had made converts in the 18th century. While it would be a mistake to take at face value, the cliched view of Lyon as a prosaic and self-absorbed mercantile community, it is not hard to believe that its inhabitants were preoccupied with the commercial affairs of which their city was so heavily and precariously dependent. They had good reason to be, given the peculiar severity of the city's economic crisis. And they had good reason to give them priority over other matters, even the political revolution. In their economic stagnation and their intellectual uncertainty, the bourgeois of late 18th century Lyon thus seem ill-fitted to play the historic role which some Marxist historians have written for the revolutionary bourgeoisie. They lacked the prosperity and the optimism which fueled the ambition of their Marseille and Bordeaux counterparts. Uncertain of themselves and of their city's future, they were ill-equipped to seize the political opportunities which arose during the spring and summer of 1789. So, according to historian Bill Edmonds, the deeply divided bourgeoisie of Lyon were ill-equipped to seize the political initiative in 1789. 
facing economic hardship and threats to their way of life, many merchants were incentivized to reform current institutions and choose to focus on business rather than politics. Likewise, it's notable that the same conclusion was reached by some workers. Keep in mind that historian Julie Johnson states that weavers were at times incentivized to work within the existing system in the hope of eventual advancement, and thus, like elements of the bourgeoisie, they had little appetite for a wholesale abandonment of the status quo. It's potentially for these reasons that no municipal revolution took place in 1789, that no formal national guard was established, that political clubs remained negligible, and that violent protests were fixated on very specific hardships, such as internal taxation barriers. In short, divisions within the Third Estate, both the bourgeoisie and the workers, limited the revolutionary enthusiasm of Lyon. Of course, these are just two perspectives, but what is beyond dispute is that Lyon lacked the revolutionary zeal which consumed not only Paris, but other similar provincial cities, such as Bordeaux, where the bourgeois eagerly overtook the municipal government. Thus, the relative conservatism of Lyon, this selective interest in the revolution, can be assigned to the unique circumstances of the city of Silk. Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes, we then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all-too-familiar examples of greed, self-dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress, Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire, enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Grey History needs your help to stay on the air. For bonus episodes, episode extras, early access, and an ad-free version of the show, 
Support the podcast today by joining the Grey History Community. You can also join the great conversations happening on the Community Discord and the new video call discussions as well. So help be the change you want to see, help produce history that isn't black and white, and help ensure that one of your favourite independent podcasts can keep bringing you the show you've come to love. Those members on the True Revolutionary tier already have early access to episode 65, Whose Revolution Is It Anyway? Support Grey History today. There's links in the show notes and on the website. But in the French Revolution, change was irresistible. And in early 1790, the aristocratic consulate was finally forced from office. Perceived as corrupt and self-interested, the vocal demands of the previous year were finally achieved. And they were achieved with force. Like their Parisian cousins, the citizens of Lyon raided the arsenal, seized weapons and forced their will upon the government. The catalyst for the February unrest appears to be the planned arrival of additional foreign troops to reinforce the consulate's precarious position just as the royal government's use of foreign troops had sparked unrest in Paris in mid and late 1789. Having resisted the creation of a formal National Guard, and having insisted on the collection of unpopular taxes, the Conservative consulate had finally gone too far. But for the small minority of passionate revolutionaries in Lyon, the new municipal government which replaced the consulate wasn't much better. In Paris, the first revolutionary mayor was Bailly, the respected astronomer who had led the Third Estate during the tennis court oath in Versailles in June 1789. Years before his reputation was tarnished by the Champ de Mars massacre in July 1791, Bailly's installation had been a cause for celebration in the capital. But no such patriot was forthcoming in Lyon. The new mayor was in fact a former official of the old regime, and conservatives dominated the elected body, including bankers, merchants, and even former members of the consulate. To make matters worse, new departmental elections returned an even more conservative body, and a majority of the department's directory actually came from outside of Lyon itself. Thus, For the die-hard revolutionaries of Lyon, it was out of the frying pan and into the oven. Sure, the conservative and aristocratic consulate had finally been overthrown, months after similar events had swept across the nation. But the despised relic of the old regime was immediately replaced with an elected body that wasn't terribly different in its political disposition. With so-called passive citizens excluded from the democratic process thanks to the reforms of the National Assembly, many active citizens had opted for stability and tranquility. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you why. If the spice must flow on Arrakis, the silk must flow in Lyon. By the end of 1790, despair was the order of the day. Not only was the new municipality full of the same prejudices as the old, but Lyon was seemingly becoming a bastion for the counter-revolution. With the emigration of the disgruntled nobility 
now in full swing, Lyon's closeness to the frontier made it a natural destination for aristocrats escaping the revolution. Likewise, its conservative merchants had their own gripes. The revolution's assault on the court and the aristocracy had decimated the key source of demand for their precious luxury export. Furthermore, the deputies of the National Assembly were committed to free market principles, principles which endangered the artificial mechanisms which had reinforced Lyon's mastery of silk production, such as tariffs and exclusive rights. Thus, the revolution wasn't just threatening the purchases of silk, but the source of wealth for the city's elites. Now, in a revolution defined by constant alarm at the latest plot and conspiracy, it's hardly surprising that such an atmosphere permeated the nation's second city. A royalist conspiracy was around every corner in Paris, so why not so in Lyon? But in Lyon, the rumours were actually true. A genuine royalist conspiracy was unearthed in December 1790. This conspiracy, which must have been up for an award for the worst-kept secret, would attempt to liberate the king during a royal visit. The plan was to smuggle him across the border into the kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia, which was less than 50 miles or 80 kilometres away from Lyon. Needless to say, this plot went nowhere, but suspicions were thus confirmed that the city's elites were becoming increasingly counter-revolutionary. With emigrating nobles, dissenting clergy, and genuine royalist conspiracies, Lyon's reputation as a haven for reaction and royalism was well and truly flourishing. Dejected by the situation at hand, Madame Roland, the wife of the future interior minister, informed one friend, The place is done for. The counter-revolution has begun here. Yet, for all the doom and gloom, the end of 1790 actually represented a turning point in favour of the revolution. While up until now, Lyon had generally lagged the revolutionary passions of its counterparts, 1791 would see it leapfrog the country and establish a citadel not of royalism, but democracy. In the aftermath of the foiled conspiracy, Jean-Marie Roland and like-minded associates secured prominent positions on a revamped municipal council. Now, Roland has appeared in and out of our main narrative for quite some time, and for Grey History community members, do remember that there is a biography of both Roland and Madame Roland in episode 28, The Brousseauan Ministry, which is a bonus episode just for the amazing people keeping this show on the air. As a quick refresher, Roland was of course the interior minister during the Brousseauan ministry between March and June 1792. This was, in a sense, the war cabinet, which oversaw France's declaration of war against Austria in April of that year. Roland's relatively short tenure ended abruptly when the minister challenged the king over his controversial vetoes, protecting both émigré nobles and non-constitutional clergy. As a result, the Brousseauans were forced out of the ministry, along with the then foreign minister, de Maurier, 
causing much commotion amongst the radical cohorts of Paris. You may recall that the dismissal of the Brissoans resulted in the invasion of the Tuileries Palace on 20 June, when the king was cornered by an armed crowd, forced to wear a red liberty cap, and required to toast to the health of the nation. That was episode 32, Uninvited Guests. After the overthrow of the monarchy just eight weeks later, Roland returned to the post of the Interior Minister, where he became the most prominent Girondin in the new Executive Council. But prior to his escapades in the capital, Roland had been an inspector of manufacturers in Lyon. An office of the old regime, an inspector's job was to enforce the regulations of the silk trade, providing the inspectors with a wide range of knowledge and contacts throughout the industry. With these contacts, and finding himself out of a job thanks to the revolution abolishing the office of inspectors, Roland was at the forefront of the popular democratic movement in Lyon. Now, historians do dispute just how much credit can be attributed to Roland and his associates directly, but it's generally retold that Roland and his allies spearheaded a new era of revolutionary politics. The Rolandans, as they're called, reshaped the political landscape, proactively encouraging the creation of neighbourhood political societies. They also pioneered the involvement of those societies in governing the city. So it's here that we get another significant deviation from Paris, but this time Lyon will actually be the more radical of the two. In Paris. We're familiar with a few large revolutionary societies, such as the Jacobins and the Cordelais. The former was never based on a single neighbourhood of the capital, with its original members being deputies of the National Assembly. The latter was originally based on the Cordelais district, but it soon became a larger institution, divorced from representing a single neighbourhood alone. What we have here in Lyon is different. Desperate for their city to embrace the revolution, Roland and his allies gave up on the divided and disorientated bourgeoisie, which had hitherto done little in progressing the revolutionary agenda. Instead, these intellectual revolutionaries bet their house on the common people. The Rolandans recognised that the working classes could act as a revolutionary vanguard when they were properly organised and properly led. Believing that the common people were full of patriotism, they sought to reposition Lyon's political societies towards this cohort, as they had previously been the domains of the well-to-do. This would provide the perfect opportunity to educate citizens in their patriotic and civil responsibilities, allow passive citizens to participate in the political process, and, perhaps most importantly, furnish Roland and his associates with some much-needed muscle to advance the revolutionary cause. To actually do this, their plan, to the extent there was one, was simple. They would foster the development of a revolutionary society in every one of the city's 32 sections, tapping into the long traditions of neighbourhood politics. No equivalent approach existed in Paris, where only a small minority of sections actually had their own local neighbourhood club. By the start of 1791, 
the revolutionaries were starting to see success. In a city with proud neighbourhood identities, and neighbourhoods at times defined by social, economic or geographic uniqueness, the idea of local, section-specific clubs found a receptive audience. Reinforcing this was the fact that Lyon had taken a rather unique approach to devising the city's 32 sections, the most basic administrative unit in the new regime, which, as a reminder, were used initially for the purpose of organising elections in large urban centres. If you're ever confused, do remember that the sections can be thought of as something similar to wards in a city, although their functions were often more expansive and varied over time. Now, in Paris, the city's historic quarters were replaced with 60 districts in 1789 as part of the electoral process for the Estates General. Then, when the districts became too independent and unruly, they were replaced in mid-1790 with 48 sections. These 48 sections had little correlation with how the city had been divided prior to the revolution. Likewise, we saw in the last episode the Norman town of Caen devise for itself five large sections, with the size hampering the development of neighbourhood politics and the associated sectional autonomy. In Bordeaux and Marseille, the new sections were named numerically, section 1, section 2, section 3, etc., again discouraging sectional independence. But in Lyon, the new sections were almost carbon copies of the traditional quarters which had existed for decades. Many sections had the same name and the same boundaries as their old regime predecessors. So these new neighbourhood political clubs were able to exploit and reinforce a strong tradition of residents associating with their own local neighbourhoods and wanting decisions to be made on a neighbourhood basis. Thus, in embedding political societies into every section of the city, the revolutionaries of Lyon went much further than either Paris or the other provincial centres. But what's noteworthy here is not that Lyon had so many clubs, but rather what they did with them. Each club sent delegates to regular meetings of a new institution, the Club Central, or the Central Club, which was sort of a central body for the political societies of the city. Now, importantly, the Club Central was not designed to be an independent entity. The delegates sent to the Club Central were more like mandatories, and their duty was to represent the will of their specific neighbourhood club. Half a club's delegation was replaced monthly, and they could be recalled by their club if they didn't accurately reflect the society's wishes. With the majority needed for decisions by the club centrale, the system acknowledged the supremacy of the sectional clubs. At the club centrale, the delegates of the neighbourhood societies adopted policy proposals, endorsed electoral candidates, and assembled delegations to the municipality on behalf of all of the city's sectional clubs. No such equivalent existed in Paris, and this central organisation of the neighbourhood clubs had two outcomes with huge consequences. Firstly, the club central started influencing the composition of the local municipal government and their policy priorities. The neighbourhood clubs, through the club central, 
started to endorse specific candidates in elections, distributing endorsed slates. With limited enfranchisement and low voter turnout, this coordination had an overwhelming impact. For example, in 1791, in the section of Hotel Dieu, 10 Patriot candidates were endorsed by the clubs to fill 10 open seats on the municipal council. In this section, every candidate backed by the clubs received between 164 and 179 votes. No other candidate received more than 11 votes. In 1792, by the time passive citizens had the right to vote, some endorsed candidates were winning upwards of 95% of the vote. And yes, there were some contemporaries raising questions about such high proportions. Nevertheless, the clubs were coordinating amongst themselves with patriotic revolutionaries they wanted to nominate, and then they were marshalling their supporters to achieve electoral success. But this is where it gets interesting. The clubs could then turn this success at the ballot box into practical policy outcomes. When the Club Central started to petition the municipality, they were increasingly received by friendly faces. A new mayor and other senior office holders had all won with the club's endorsement. With the active support of the political societies, even at times their suggestion, new officials oversaw a range of popular policies aimed at reducing taxes and increasing the supply of food and commodities. Nowhere else had a large urban centre created a central institution composed of delegates by individual neighbourhood clubs and then used that institution to achieve electoral and policy success. Far from a bastion of royalism, Lyon was now trailblazing in its embrace of the revolutionary era. Interestingly, some of the intellectual bourgeoisie championing these developments, including Roland himself, were a little uneasy about just how successful this strategy had become. They worried that there was a risk that the clubs could become too domineering over Lyon's official government institutions. This is of course exactly what the Girondins would later complain about in terms of the Jacobin club's influence in the capital. But for now, the revolution supporters were achieving considerable success. Let the good times roll. The second key consequence of this proliferation of neighbourhood clubs was the creation of a far more democratic city. As each section had its own club, and each club sent the same number of delegates to the club central, the poorer sections and passive citizens were given a greater say in the political process. To elaborate, I want you to imagine the situation if these clubs didn't exist. 51% of Lyon's active citizens, so those eligible to vote due to meeting the specified taxation thresholds, lived in just 12 sections of the city. In other words, a majority of eligible voters came from just over a third of the city's sections. Anywhere else, these voters and this minority of sections would have been critical in determining the fate of local elections. But what made Lyon unique is that the popular societies made political participation accessible to some passive citizens that the National Assembly had deliberately tried to exclude 
from the democratic process. As each neighbourhood club sent the same number of delegates to the club central, and as there were more poorer sections than wealthier ones, it was actually those poorer sections which had a dominant say at the club central. And as previously mentioned, it was the club central who was making the endorsement decisions of approved candidate slates. List of candidates which were almost guaranteed victory in the actual formal elections. Whereas the distinction between active and passive citizens diminished the importance of poorer neighbourhoods simply because they had less eligible voters, the unique situation in Lyon ensured that poorer neighbourhoods had not just an equal, but in fact dominant say in who got elected, despite the lack of active citizens. Furthermore, the individual clubs could make up their own entry requirements, setting their own membership fees. In some instances, these were set substantially lower than the fees for the Parisian Jacobins. How much lower? Like a quarter of the fees of the famous club in the capital. While the existence of fees still prevented the poor from participating, it did mean that a large number of artisans who were excluded from the official electoral system could still participate in the internal electoral process of the clubs. This was no small development, as it was essentially the internal elections between the clubs themselves which were producing the final electoral result, due to the use of candidate slates. So, while passive citizens remained passive officially, those who could afford to participate in the neighbourhood clubs were having an influential role in the democratic process, despite being explicitly excluded from that process under the constitution. In short, despite Leon's reputation for all things reactionary, here we have tangible signs of what we would call popular democracy. This was unique to Leon, and this collaboration between bourgeois intellectuals, artisans, and working class citizens was miles ahead of the Saint-Culotte movement which would emerge in Paris. Despite the influence of the clubs in the capital, the political societies of Paris had no such influence or institutional coordination at this time. Far from a royalist city, Lyon was a revolutionary one. Historian Bill Edmonds summarises the profound impact of these developments and why this situation was just so revolutionary compared to other urban centres. The effect of the municipal revolution in Lyon combined with the advent of the clubs, had thus been drastically to limit the local political influence of the wealthiest section of the bourgeoisie. Merchantile Lyon was obliged to look on impotently while its critics amongst the educated elites collaborated with popular democrats to create a version of democracy which for the first time permitted men below the level of the bourgeoisie to carry out sustained and organised intervention in the city's affairs. Channels had been established through which the common people could apply political pressure in an organised way. The social basis of political participation had been deliberately widened, and at the municipal level, a damaging blow had been struck at the constitutional link between property and political influence. Edmund also writes, The popular democratic movement in Lyon was significant, 
because it existed for more than two years as a framework for popular political participation and an alternative to the homogeny of the propertied classes which the National Assembly was seeking to entrench. It opened channels through which the common people could apply political pressure in an organised way and established in practice the right of active political participation for men who worked with their hands. If by the end of 1790, revolutionaries despaired at Lyon's reactionary state, then within just a few short months, the revolutionary movement was scoring success after success. With the clubs coordinating effectively to dominate elections, the mercantile elite were slowly replaced with either sympathetic bourgeois intellectuals or those better-off artisans who met the eligibility requirements for holding office under the constitution. This is a significant deviation from the other commercial cities, where the mercantile bourgeois eagerly monopolised power once the old order had been swiftly overturned. Now in office, the Rolanans attempted to improve the social and economic conditions of Lyon, but with typical Girondin limitations. As we well know, like the other Girondins, Roland was committed to free trade and detested government intervention. Such views were shared by many, but not all, of Roland's local allies. With his most like-minded associates, essentially the Girondin equivalents in the city. As such, there were not only limitations on what any municipality could practically achieve, but also limitations on what the newly empowered Rolanans were willing to do. Supporting the production of bread to reduce high prices? Absolutely. But requiring price maximums on bread to contain high prices? Absolutely not. Reducing the tax imposition on the working poor? Sounds great. Allowing the poor to stop paying those taxes until they had been legally revoked? Not a chance. Needless to say, this by-the-book approach, which exemplifies so many Girondin policies, was hardly the recipe for long-term success. Just as we've seen with the Girondins and the Parisian Saint-Colottes, this inflexibility in meeting popular demands would have significant consequences for their popularity. Yet, we are getting ahead of ourselves, and for a while, the Rolanans in 1791 and even 1792 were genuinely popular amongst the working people of Lyon. They undoubtedly enjoyed the support of the clubs which had helped to both elect them and guide the municipality's policies. For the briefest of moments, the revolutionaries of Lyon could be happy with the progress they had achieved. But, as I said, for the briefest of moments. The flight to Varennes in mid-1791 destabilised the whole situation. In response to the king's failed escape attempt, an unbridgeable divide emerged. Some neighbourhood clubs demanded a republic, and the Club Centrale even endorsed one, but others rallied behind the constitutional monarchy. A schism occurred as some neighbourhood societies, as well as the local Jacobin club, split with the clubist movement to associate with the newly formed Fionns. Yet, just like the capital, the real schism was not so much between the Jacobins and the Fionns, 
but between the Jacobins which remained. You see, the flight to Varennes was merely the first of a series of crises which would soon consume the revolution and endanger its very existence. 1792 would bring legislative gridlock, controversial royal vetoes, foreign war, foreign invasion, poor harvests, inflation, prison massacres, the rise of popular activism, and of course, the overthrow of the monarchy. All of these factors defined the revolution, and in particular, the emerging struggle between the mountain and the Gironde. For some local revolutionaries, those dissatisfied with the moderation of the Rolonnans, the radicalizing Jacobins of the capital, and the Parisian Saint-Culotte movement offered an alternative approach. The factionalism of Paris was coming for Lyon. With it would come civil war and terror. Thank you for listening to episode 64, Lyon, Royalist or Revolutionary. In the next episode, we'll explore the factional conflicts of Lyon, as well as an insurrection that is both so similar and so different to what we might expect. Community members on the true revolutionary tier already have early access to this episode a whole two weeks before the public show. Before you go, I've got a question. Did you find this episode entertaining? Did you find it educational? If the answer is yes, then please help ensure that I can continue to bring you the show you've come to love. There are tons of great perks for joining the Grey History community, and I won't be able to continue to bring you Grey History without support from the show's listeners. There's a link in the show notes and on the website. A huge thank you again to those people supporting the podcast, and a special thank you to the newest members of the community and the extraordinarily generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff, Orga, Kevin, Scott, Andrew, and Howard. As always, thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day. I interrupt this regular programming to bring you some alarming news. There's been some counter-revolutionary activity. I suppose it's a mark of the show's growing popularity, but unfortunately some reactionary fun sponges have recently left Grey History's first one and two star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Usually, I would ignore such unenlightened behaviour and consider it an inevitable achievement of all noteworthy podcasts. But, besides complaining about my shitty jokes and apparently lack of detail, yes, you heard right, these reviews are quite literally impacting the discoverability of the show for new listeners. That, of course, is jeopardising this experiment in full-time production, which I think we can all agree we don't want to jeopardise. So, if you listen to Apple Podcasts in particular and you haven't already done so, if you could please leave a written review, that would be absolutely amazing. Just go to Grey History in the app and scroll down to the review section and help me expunge this counter-revolutionary plot. Thank you again for all your help, and now back to the show.